All right, open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 48 is where we're going to be today. Just one verse. Matthew 5, 48. As you're turning there, if you will bow with me in word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for a time to hear from you through your word. I pray, Father, that you would speak in place of me to all of us as we listen. Pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding to look at the text that's in front of us, to make sense of it, and to apply it to our lives. We need your help here in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, With our celebrity culture, uh, as popular as that is, there are people that actually make a living to take pictures of celebrities looking their worst. Now, I don't normally feel sorry for celebrities, all right? But if I'm going to get close to feeling sorry for a celebrity, it would be at, at this moment when they clearly have just rolled out of bed and gone to the grocery store because their milk was expired and somebody just snapped a picture of them as they're looking awful. Now, While I kind of feel something close to sorry for them when I see those pictures, let's all admit it, it kind of captures our attention for a second. It kind of draws us in as we look at these celebrities because you're so used to seeing this person on screen or this person in a magazine that always looks perfect when you see what they really look like, you feel a little better. Come on, let's be honest. You feel a little better. You go, okay, when the makeup comes off, she's still human, right? Guys, come on. Arnold may have once been the Terminator, but then he turned 60, and he no longer looks like Mr. Universe, right? Well, welcome to the club, okay? So you can look at your wife and you can say, I'm aging just like the Terminator, baby. <laughs> I'm on pace <laughs> to be exactly what the Terminator was. All right? Now it's, it's becoming a fad even for, to take off the makeup and to just to take a picture. They say, without your war paint on, Right? To take a picture with no makeup on, and it's supposed to be this picture of authenticity. It's this, the real you. This is who I'm, who I am. You're showing the world without Photoshop, without screen, without uh, uh, filters, without, without airbrushing. You're showing the world what you really look like. Because I think even the secular world recognizes that there's such a thing as too perfect. So perfect, in fact, that it's Our text this morning is very short, and in it Jesus is going to command something that, to be honest with you, is too much for us. And so I want this text to force us to ask ourselves a question. Is the person that I really am and the person I am presenting to others the same or different? Who am I really? Let's read our verse this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the single verse that we're looking at this morning is really a summary of the entire Sermon on the Mount so far. You, you've noticed... Uh, you may have noticed if, if you were here last week as we went through the passage, I stopped at verse 47. And since most of our translations don't put a new heading above 48, we tend to read verse 48 along with the passage that precedes it. But I don't think that it is a, a conclusion to just that one paragraph. I think Jesus is summing up everything that he's talked about so far. So this passage could easily say, like, like verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Behind each of these antitheses, the past six passages that we've looked at the last six weeks, each of them could be followed with, You, therefore, must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's remember where we are in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. And he's telling us what it really means for God's people to come fully under God's rule. What does it mean for God's people to really fully come under God's rule? Now, something new is happening here with Jesus. Because prior to his coming in the Old Testament law, it, had, it, it served as a way for the Jewish people to worship God. They needed a way to come into God's presence to worship God. And for the Jewish people, the Old Testament served that purpose. This is the purpose of the Old Testament law, often called the law of Moses. Now, there are many purposes for it. But first and foremost, it presented a way for sinful humanity to come into the presence of a holy God. And it was a, it was a temporary stopgap for a holy God to not thump creation into oblivion for their sin. Without the law, how could sinful humanity enjoy commune with a holy God in whose image they were created? They couldn't do it. There's absolutely no way possible for them to worship God without the law. So the law at least provides them that. But what does the law actually do to rectify, to turn back the clock, if you will, this sinful situation that mankind is in? Well, the answer, as it turns out in, as you read through the Old Testament, is not much. When I was a kid, my mom, who is sitting right over here, by the way, had a 1988, if I remember right, 1988 white Buick LeSabre. This car was a big boat of a car, if you remember. It was massive. It was back in the day when you had that back dash behind the back seats, the dash that was big enough for an entire kid to lay down on. And we did, as mom drove down the road, we just laid on that back shelf. If mom had hit the brakes very hard or had hit another car, we go flying through the window. I mean, but we laid down on that back deck. The Buick LeSabre also had a, a headliner that was lined with felt. <laughs> 
And Buick, I guess, just glued that felt on there with, I guess, Elmer's glue. I don't know what it was, but it obviously didn't work too well. And when the Texas heat started, have I told you that Texas is hot? Texas is hot, okay? So in the summer, that Texas heat starts baking inside the car, and that Elmer's glue just starts to turn loose. And before long, the felt is coming loose from the headliner, and it's starting to sag a little bit. And so after a little while, everybody in the car is starting to ride kind of like this, trying to, not, trying to dodge the felt as it comes down. Poor mom's holding on to the wheel of the car and driving like this so she doesn't mess up her perm. <laughs> so when the felt on the headliner starts to come loose, what do you do? Do you take it back to the dealership and have them replace it? No. Not when you're some poor people that are rednecks from small town Texas. You get a staple gun. <laughs> We stapled that felt to the roof of the car. No telling. I can't believe we just drove down the road with these staples all in the headliner of our car. Fixed it. But of course we didn't fix it. We didn't rectify the problem at all. In fact, we may have created a whole new problem. Magnets were just attracted to us, you know, just going down the road adding all that metal. Similarly, the Old Testament law is designed in such a way so as not to fix the problem of man's sinful state, but to keep them from having to drive with their head down below the steering wheel. They're able to have fellowship with God still, in spite of their sin. Uh, Jesus now comes in and is telling everyone, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And what he means by that is the law is pointing you in the right direction. It's pointing you towards fellowship with God and towards right worship of God. It's pointing you towards a holy God so that you understand who he is. The problem is that it can never bring you into the gates of the kingdom of heaven as anything more than an immigrant. The law might give you a traveler's visa, but I have come to give you citizenship in full. Full, outright, unadulterated citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. So because our verse this morning is a summary of chapter 5, I'm going to hopefully show how it summarizes at least three big points that Jesus has made so far about how we enter the kingdom of heaven. The first point that he's made is that Pharisaic righteousness will not do. Pharisaic righteousness will not do. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 is focused on helping people understand what it actually means to live righteously. How do I live righteously? Here is what it means to actually live in accordance with heavenly righteousness. And for the vast majority of the people that are listening to Jesus preach, there are no better practitioners of this law than the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes are primarily known as the teachers of the law. They not only knew the law They taught it. 
So as you can imagine how you would typically think of a teacher of the law or a teacher of anything, not only as someone who knows it and understands it, but someone who actually puts it to work as well. Somebody who actually practices it. You would think that of a math teacher. If they taught math, you would think that they actually knew how to balance a checkbook on their own, right? The Pharisees were, of course, also known for their strict adherence to law. Their their moral purity. The Pharisees were more like a, a political association in a manner of speaking than they were anything else. But a Pharisee, to be a Pharisee, signified something really significant about how you view not only the law, but how you viewed your life in the law, how you should live as a, as a, as a member of God's covenant community, how the law should impact society as a whole, how we should govern ourselves as Jews. And we don't need to look any further for what it was to be a Pharisee than, the, than our own Apostle Paul, who in Philippians 3, as he's given a list of his qualifications of what made him a really good person, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's supposed to impress you. You're supposed to go, oh, wow. Oh, oh, that's what you mean. That's how you live by the law. You were a Pharisee. So here are two groups the scribes and the Pharisees, and for the average Joe, these represent the religious elite, defenders of the law of God, spotless practitioners of righteousness in Jewish society. And yet Jesus says in 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. See, the antitheses, which are the past six passages that we've looked at, all the passages that begin with, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, those are called antitheses, those last six that we've studied, are all designed to show the utter ineptitude of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In some cases, like when it comes to anger, the Pharisees don't go far enough you look there in verse 21, he tells us that the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching you not to murder. And if you murder, that you'll be liable for judgment. But Jesus is coming in and saying, they're not going far enough. That's not heavenly righteousness. It's on the right track, but it's not near far enough. I say to you, even the slightest bit of malice in your heart toward your brother renders you worthy of help. In other teachings, Jesus is saying the Pharisees and the scribes are pointing you in the wrong direction. The passage that we talked about last week where the Pharisees and the scribes are teaching you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus is saying that's not at all the direction the law is pointing. That's the opposite direction. That's not pointing in the right direction. According to, to true righteousness, heavenly righteousness, you shouldn't even have any enemies. You should love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. In other words, the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount is shocking to those in attendance. And Jesus is saying, if your plan is to mimic the scribes and the Pharisees and to see their way of life as the standard for your own righteousness, then I'm sorry, but you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's just not going to cut it. Now, this is a striking blow, if you can imagine that. 
a strong right hook. I mean, if the religious elites in society, the teachers and the authorities, if they don't have what it takes, what are the odds I do? Think about that for a minute. What are the odds that I do? We're in the midst of uh, very troubling times in our church and our churches today. And I think everyone will agree with that statement, but we don't all agree on the reason for the troubling times. Some will say to you that the troubling times are here because the culture has turned unfavorable toward the church. Others will say the government has turned unfavorably toward the church. And while I think both of those would be disheartening if true, I don't think they're even in the conversation of the most troubling factors in our churches today. There are Christians all over the world who function and even flourish in societies where both the culture and the power is against them. Sometimes even murderously so. No, I think it's far more troubling that in our pews they're filled with people that lack both biblical knowledge and spiritual discipline and are being torn apart over struggles over sin but are too afraid to say anything because well, that's just not how you do at church. So instead, we put on a mask like everyone else. We have in our minds this photoshopped image of what a Christian is supposed to be and what we think everyone wants to see. A person whose marriage is perfect whose kids aren't crazy, who's always fine. And in the end, all we've done is substituted the Old Testament law for a new law. Only this new law is even harder to follow because it demands perfection and provides no sacrifice. You can never be less than great. Further, It changes how we lead our families at home and how we train up our children. We don't teach our kids the actual gospel. We teach them our new law of Pharisaic righteousness. Act right. Make good choices. Work hard. And for Pete's sake, don't embarrass the family. We're teaching our children to live by the same law that we've been conditioned to live by. Confession of sin is just not a normal part of our lives together as Christians. Admitting that we're less than stellar or that we have significant moral struggles is not what we're supposed to be about. That kind of Perfect on the outside righteousness. Won't do. Second point that Jesus has made so far about how we enter the kingdom of heaven is that perfect heavenly righteousness is required. 
perfect heavenly righteousness is required. Our first inclination as we read that in verse 48, I think, is to think that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Surely he's being hyperbolic here. And some people have taken him to be hyperbolic, to be speaking hyperbolically, because after all, how can we be perfect? No one can be perfect. So surely he's using hyperbole. And Jesus uses a word here for perfect that can sometimes mean mature or complete. And so the argument goes that Jesus is really demanding maturity or completeness of right living that exceeds, merely exceeding, the scribes and Pharisees, or is at least always pointed in the right direction, whereas the scribes, and sometimes when it comes to loving your neighbor, they'll say, hate your enemy, and well, that's not right. So as long as we're more mature than the scribes and the Pharisees, we're pointed in the right direction, then we're okay. I don't think that is the case at all, for one, because the word that Jesus uses here for perfect can also mean perfection, as in our case, moral perfection. And second, because the comparison that he makes is to whom? Is to the Father. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God the Father is not merely mature. He is the epitome of moral perfection. And it seems abundantly clear that Jesus is calling us to imitate him. Jesus is most likely combining two similar thoughts from the Old Testament. The first is from Leviticus 19.2, where he says, where it says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But in our verse, of course, he substitutes holy for perfect. Because probably in Deuteronomy 18.13, it says, You shall be blameless. Before the Lord your God. And the word for blameless there in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is the same word that we've got here. A blameless, a spotless perfection. Now you have to remember, and this is complicated to think through, but Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. And Matthew is writing in Greek. And so it's already translated by the time it puts pen to paper. So Jesus probably uses a word, thinking of Deuteronomy 18.13, in Aramaic, that is blameless. And Matthew uses a word like blameless because that would be the most faithful he could be to what Jesus actually says. He uses that word in Greek. The point is, all of that, that you are to imitate God the Father in His absolute moral perfection. And this is not the first time, this is not the only time That we're told to imitate God in Scripture. We're told this several times throughout Scripture. Like Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God. But we're also told in this very chapter, in chapter 5, that we are to let our light shine before others, that they will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. And in the passage that we talked about last week, we are to love our enemies so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. All that language that's in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, all that language is telling us to imitate the Father. The culmination of this passage is to imitate God the Father in His absolute moral perfection. The requirement of a Christian is righteousness. God's righteousness. The righteousness of God Himself. I want to bring back an image 
that I used a few months ago so that we can keep it in our minds. Imagine that you are right now transported to heaven. Just, you're there. Boom, poof, we're all there. Look around you, we're in heaven, okay? Doesn't it look and feel like heaven? We're there. You look around at the people. You might be seeing some family members that you haven't seen in a long time, and this time you're not running from them, all right? It's all good, okay? People are talking and fellowshipping with one another. I don't know what you picture when you picture heaven, but whatever it is, picture that. Think about what that is. People walking around, maybe working and enjoying the work, maybe even talking to other people. Now, tell me, where's the police department? Oh, you're thinking to yourself, well, there's not, not a police department. There's no need for a police department. That's right. There's no investigative unit. There's no... CSI on TV. Nobody's watching that. CSI, New Earth, not happening. Okay? Now, there are no crimes, but are people even angry with one another? No. Remember, sin is eradicated. We're not dealing with fleshly tendencies. Everyone is maximally happy and satisfied all the time. Is there even, I mean, forget adultery, is there any, any, even any lust, no. any anger, no. any pride, no. any resentment, no. any gossip, no. any slander? No. no. The world we're all picturing is completely free from all of that. Now imagine a citizen of that world gets transported back here a world where there are police stations, where there's like a thousand CSIs on TV, where anger and hostility and bitterness and greed and gossip and drunkenness are a regular part of our everyday lives, much of which inside the church as well as outside the church. Question, how is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven that is transported here expected to live? How is he or she expected to act towards people that are in the sinful world? Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. Heavenly citizens living here. That's who we are. That's what the Bible is pushing us towards. In Christ, you are a new, and you might even say heavenly, creation. You've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's in Colossians. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father is perfect. This is ultimately why the, the reason why the masks that we wear are not good enough. It's not because those masks are too perfect. It's because they're not perfect enough. And they can't be. We as the bride of Christ end up settling for an airbrushed, photoshopped, makeup-covered image that's merely covering up the ugly underneath. It's lipstick on a pig. 
for lack of a better way of saying it. The standard that Jesus is setting for us is absolute, total, moral perfection. God's moral perfection. This should be the standard that we're holding ourselves to. This should be the standard that we're holding our families to. So do you understand that when you sell your kids this idea of be honest, hardworking, and responsible, and don't embarrass the family, you'll probably raise a good, hardworking American, but you've set the bar entirely too low to raise a Christian. He grows up convinced that he's going to be with the Lord because after all, his daddy raised him to do what's right. He works hard. He's honest as much as he can be. But all he's doing is working toward a new law of be good. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moral perfection is the standard. That's what Jesus lays out for us. Now, that's pretty scary though. That's pretty scary to think about that. Which one of us can claim moral perfection? Which one of us can look back over chapter 5 and look at these six antitheses? And think, if I were standing before the judgment seat of God at this very moment, if I were standing right there, and let's pretend that there were no other antitheses that I needed to know, it was just these six in Matthew chapter 5, which one of us could stand there and say, yeah, I'm going to pass with flying colors? Which one of us could do that? I mean, we can't even let people merge into our own lane. That's hard, right? And not get mad at them. That's why the third point, perfection is possible only in Jesus Christ. Perfection is possible only in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is, there's going to come a day when God will judge the world. And every person will stand in front of God. And each one will be judged on the basis of a heavenly code of conduct. On the basis of God's righteousness. Eternal life and eternal damnation hanging in the balance. If it were on the basis of my works, I would be sentenced to an eternity in hell. As you look back over the past chapter, I hope that you've come to the conclusion that you wouldn't fare much better. You understand, if we were asked by God on that day, why should I let you into my heaven? If that was the question that was before us. Responding with, I've been a good person? isn't going to cut it. It's not going to get there. Friend, I'm sorry, but if your righteousness is as filthy rags as the Scriptures tell us that it is, what do you think your good life is? If our best is not enough, 
How far do you think I try to be a good person is going to get you? There's only one possible way out of this. And I said perfection is possible only in Jesus Christ. And I mean that in two ways. First way, through trusting in Jesus Christ, I am declared perfect before God eternally. Meaning that in God's ledger, I'm declared perfect eternally. I'm not talking about right now, this very second. I'm talking about in heaven, on the ledger of God the Father, through only Christ, I am declared perfect eternally. There is only one person in history to ever meet God's perfect standard of holiness. Meaning that if he could stand before God, and if that question was posed to him, why should I let you into my heaven? If Jesus responded, because I've been a good person, it would actually fly. That he actually did it. It would be good enough. So Jesus lived the righteous life that I never could. But instead of merely taking his place on the throne of God, what did he do? He chose to drink the cup of the fury of the wrath of God instead. The wrath of God that I deserved and you deserved for our sin. He chose to drink that cup. Yes. And he drained it dry. He served an eternity of hell in a few hours on the cross, thus paying the penalty of our sins. We read the verse this morning. I read the, verse in ser- the verses in the sermon last week. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. And God saw fit to pour out his wrath for us on Christ instead. And so, by placing my trust that I have forgiveness in Christ alone, placing my trust, my faith, in the fact that Christ really did bear that punishment for me and that His sacrifice and His sacrifice alone is enough to declare me righteous. By placing my trust in that fact, God grants me the rewards of Christ's righteous life. So in this deal, only in Christ is perfection possible because we are declared perfect. We're justified eternally. Now, it would be logical to ask in the event that there's anyone in this room who's still skeptical and thinking maybe, how do I know? How can I be assured? How am I sure that what Christ actually did on the cross actually did that he did take my place, that he actually did bear the wrath of God, that he did die in my stead, and that what he did was actually effective? It's a good question. It's one the New Testament answers, and the answer that the New Testament gives is the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection points to that. Jesus didn't stay dead on the third day. The Bible says God raised him up, having released him from the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. So plainly put, if Jesus stayed dead, we're still in our sins. If he didn't rise from the dead, it didn't work, to be honest with you. Death, which is a result of sin, had no more claim on his body because sin had indeed been paid for. And this is how we know that the substitutionary of death of Christ was effective for us. But when I say perfection is possible only in Christ, the second way I mean that 
is that through trusting in Jesus Christ, I am given the gift of the Holy Spirit in the here and now. I'm given the gift of the Holy Spirit in the here and now. By believing in Jesus Christ, I'm given the gift of His Holy Spirit. His own divine nature gives to me a new nature that is at war with the flesh. So Jesus tells His disciples that the purpose of sending the Holy Spirit, He tells them this in John 16, starting in verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. And then a few verses later in verse 13, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the ways in righteous, the, the very ways of righteousness, the, the attitudes and the affections of a citizen of the kingdom of God are given to us in our conversion. The Holy Spirit is, is given to us and he guides us into accomplishing what he has set for us so that we're actually empowered to live by the righteous standard of heaven. He's training us in actual righteousness. Paul tells us this in Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has, prepared, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's it in a nutshell. But paradoxically, to be perfect, you have to admit that you're a sinner. To inherit the wealth of the kingdom of heaven, you have to be poor in spirit. You have to admit that you don't have any claim to heaven simply because you're a good person, because you do what's right. You don't have any claim to it. To be comforted with eternal life instead of eternal death, you have to mourn over your sin, to be broken over your sin. To be satisfied eternally. You have to hunger and thirst for righteousness now. To receive mercy, you have to give mercy. In order to see God, you must be pure in heart. In order to be called sons of God, you must be a peacemaker in the here and now. See, all of that is impossible outside of Christ. You can't do it. You can't be broken over your sin. And mourn and be a peacemaker. You can't worship God without the Holy Spirit. Without new birth. It can't happen. But in Christ, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to convict us in sin and guide us in righteousness. So brothers and sisters, take off the war paint.
Who are you really? The photoshopped Christian is great, always. Never struggling to believe that, maybe even believe that God exists. Never struggles with depression. Never has marital issues. Never has financial problems. Is always faultless in his thoughts. He's always maximally satisfied in his relationship with the Lord. But he's a fake. That guy doesn't exist in real life. But we'll all be a part of this church family and we'll go through living life as a church family and no one will ever know that you're living a photoshopped life. Instagram Christian. No one will ever know. In the meantime, you're shortchanging the work that God is actually doing in your life. You're trying to present yourself as the future you. The you that you wish you were. The New Year's resolution you. The you with the six pack. You're presenting that guy. That's not who you are. That's not who you are right now. But you're presenting that guy. The perfect you. The you that will be revealed when Christ returns. That's what's going to happen. He's going to show that perfect you. Way more perfect than you can even imagine. But you're presenting that to people right now. And right now, you're depriving the rest of the body of seeing the work that God is doing in you over the course of time. Sure, in eternity, you'll be perfect. But can you imagine where you'll be 10 years from now? Can you imagine the amount of work God will have put into you in 15 years? You think you'll still be struggling with those same struggles? No, you'll have whole new ones. But in the meantime, we'll be able to rejoice over the growth that God has provided over those years. That if you pretend to be perfect, you're depriving the body of. There's no way to see the growth and rejoice in it. Furthermore, in our parenting, if we're holding our kids to this legalistic standard of be good, do what's right, make good choices, and don't embarrass me. We're selling them short on the gospel. If we set forward the gospel of perfection, they're going to know and we're going to know neither one of us are going to meet it by ourselves. They're going to know dad's a sinner just like me. Dad's going to be able to admit that. It's not going to have us putting an anvil over their head saying, if you make a mistake, I'm going to crush you. It's saying, yes, that's who we are as people. Let's go before the Lord. Let's confess our sins. Let's repent of them and let's turn to Him. question is, what are you afraid of? Better yet, who are you afraid of? You should never be afraid to be a mess in church. If you're a Christian, the Lord of all creation has simultaneously declared you righteous and a work in progress. So you're not what you will be, but you're also not what you once were. You're not hearing this from a perfect person. I still have struggles with sin. I have mightily struggled with sin over the course of my life. 
Surprise, I'm a sinner too. I don't think that was any big revelation if you really know me. All of us together are trusting Christ the righteous to guide us both toward perfect righteousness in the here and now and one day to complete that process in glory when we will be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust you. Your word tells us to be perfect as you are perfect. And as I look around at my own life, I know that I am far short of perfect. Lord, we trust you. That Christ's sacrifice on our behalf was enough. That you've given me help in striving towards righteousness. That you're going to convict me of sin when I fall short of that righteousness. Lord, I pray for the hearts of men and women, children in this room. That you would help us to see the truths of your word. For those that are hurting, that you can be trusted. That you know better than they do the circumstances. That you're watching and that you care. I pray that they would find here a community of people that they can open up to and discuss their struggles with. In an open and honest way. No judgment. I pray for the people that are struggling with self-righteousness. Holding themselves above all others. Pray that you would break their heart. Pray that you would convict them of what true righteousness is and that they can't in and of themselves live up to it. And where we all struggle in self-righteousness, pray you would convict us and turn us from it. That in the end, we would just trust you. That we would hold one another accountable to the things that we see in Scripture to live this way. That that would be our Standard of righteousness, your standard, that we would joyfully submit to it and be willing to admit where we fall short. In Jesus' name, amen.